Welcome to Still Scared Talking Children's Horror, a podcast about creepy, spooky, and disturbing children's books, films, and TV. I'm Ron Wednesday, my co-host is Adam Wybray. Today we're talking about Grinny and Monster Maker by Nicholas Fisk. A full transcript of this episode will be available, so check the show notes for that. Enjoy! Hoi hoi, hello Ren. Hey, um, you ready to talk about some scary grannies? Uh, do you mean, am I ready to talk about safeguarding issues in the 1970s? Because <laughs> yes, I am. <laughs> I think that will come up, yeah. Um... <laughs> so we're talking about two books by Nicholas Fisk, uh, Grinny and the slightly later Monster Maker. Yeah, and um, this is a, a listener recommendation, actually. So uh, thank you, Dave, if you're listening. Um, oh my God, I hope they're still listening. Like, when was this recommended <laughs> to us? Oh, only last year. It's not that long. Oh, yeah, that's fine. You know, <laughs> knowing our updates, that's, that's, that's pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, so had you read either of these before? Uh, no, I hadn't even heard of them. Ah, I, I'd heard of Grinny. Um, and the name had stayed in my mind, but I'd always kind of side-eyed it. Um, the kids in the book do this eyes-to-the-left trick, which is basically side-eyeing. But I think I side-eyed Grinny, much as the kids in the book do. Um, <laughs> I didn't like the name, I didn't read it. But I did read Trillions, um, hmm. which is not a horror, um, though it is a little bit uncanny. But it's a, a science fiction book he wrote about an alien dust that communicates by forming itself into patterns. Hmm. Um, which did make quite an impression on me, but that's the only Nicholas Fisk I've read up till yeah, so now. He's kind of described as a sort of science fiction writer for children, which is quite an interesting niche. Um, I think, like, in terms of comparisons to what we've talked about before, he's probably closest to William Sleater. Yes, um, the, and definitely the slightly... Because some William Sleater um, is kind of more cynical or a bit nastier than others. Um, mm. Like the view of human nature is quite negative in something like House of Stairs or um, yeah. When the Heads Came or The Double. And uh, there is definitely a bit of William Sleater crossover. Um, I think Nicholas Fisk is certainly more interested in... In the science fiction side of things. Uh, okay, I think with William Sleater, he's interested... William Sleater's basically Black Mirror for kids, right? <laughs> the, the the sci-fi stuff's very thinly sketched, but he's really interested in the ramifications. <laughs> like, okay, if there was a doubling or a cloning machine, what would be the ramifications? He doesn't really care much about, you know, what that cloning machine would look like or how it operates. Whereas, I feel like with Nicholas Fisk, though he doesn't go into 
lots of detail about Grinny's home planet. I feel like that's all worked out in his head. Mm-hmm. There's some real sci-fi kind of underlying these books, even though you yeah. might not see all of it. Like in Monster Maker, which isn't actually so much of a science fiction book, there's a lot of technical detail. Mm. Oh, yeah. About how the monsters in the book are made. Yeah, yeah. It's uh... Monster Maker is an interesting book. I think we'll, we'll get to that um, later and talk about Grinny first, because that's uh, the more well-known one. Um, although I think we both preferred Monster Maker. <laughs> yeah, that that's true. But you are right, the Grinny is more well-known. And my edition is the Puffin Modern Classics edition. So it is a, a re-release, I think, from the mm. 1990s, so from when we were kids. Um, and it's got um, a little... You'd almost expect it to be an introduction, actually. But an afterword, um, I think, yeah. p- possibly by the series editor or something, by this Chris Powling, sort of talking about when he first read Grinny. Yeah. Um, yeah, I have the same issue, um, the same edition, with um, <laughs> with a sort of old lady on the front with uh, bright white eyes and sort of purple teeth uh, in front of a, a flying saucer. <laughs> Forked yeah. lightning coming down, yeah. Yeah, it, it, it looks kind of like a graphic from one of those terrible alien conspiracy video conspiracy <laughs> videos on YouTube or <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, mm. but yeah it's in um, it's in pretty uh, good company in the uh, Puff and Modern Classics mm. with uh, got Watership Down The Borrowers um, The Dark is Rising yeah which um, we'll have to do at some point we will have to do yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's clearly quite uh, well well liked. Uh, and it's quite a high concept, right? Yeah. You know, what if there was an alien invading your home, but it looked like a sweet old lady? Hmm. <laughs> so um, it's, it's told uh, through the diary of um, eleven-year-old Tim. <laughs> Who? <laughs> you're you're, you're just Im- immediately laughing, even thinking about him. <laughs> I just who's <laughs> a uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, a very pompous little boy. <laughs> uh, he, he's precocious, I think it's fair to say. <laughs> yeah. Um. So shall I? Shall I just? I mean, this is only from um, page eleven, so it's. It's from near the beginning. And can I just read this little passage, uh, which I think should give you, the listener, a a sense of the character of Tim. (laughs) Then father and mother came in from feeding the rabbits. He made a complete bosh of it as usual, saying all the wrong things, making it quite clear that he hadn't a clue about the very existence of great aunts. But she fixed him with her beady eye and grinned and said, you remember me, Edward. And he re-entered the 20th century in great style, pouring everyone sherry. He gave Beth, who is seven, as much sherry as me, eleven, which is typical. Beth was, as ever, the outstanding social success, and shook hands and said, Oh, what a lovely surprise, and looked more like a telly ad than ever. Hm. I suppose it's a graceful accomplishment, but it's also the mark of a little cow. 
She swallowed the sherry pretty fast and went across to pour herself some more, but Mum caught her eye and said, Beth, and that was the end of that. I got another half-glass later. It was quite good sherry. A manzanilla. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, re- reading him as no- Noel Coward, perhaps, would have read <laughs> Um... <laughs> but yes, he's a little eleven-year-old sherry connoisseur. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, that's a that's a good passage because that um, that shows us uh, this great aunt Emma's um, later known as Grinny's uh, main trick for dealing with adults is uh, just saying you remember me, <laughs> and then they they go oh oh yeah of course great aunt Emma. Hello, may I help you? She says she's my great-aunt Emma. Mom, do I have one? Not that I know of. Oh, I'm sure you remember me. Beth, this is your great-aunt Emma. The one we're always talking about. Who did you say it was, dear? You know my Aunt Emma. That's funny. I don't... uh... Of course, you remember me. Emma, how have you been? Will you be staying long? Which yeah, I think is ha- is the name of the sequel to the book. You remember me? Ah. Um, in which another alien of of the same the same race, so another kind of robot alien, is dispatched to Earth in the form of a TV presenter, apparently. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um. So yeah, he's um. Yeah, she uh, she arrives on the doorstep, says, oh, you remember me, Millie, and uh, is invited into the family home for a sort of seemingly indefinite visit. Um, and uh, Tim kind of records the various eccentricities of a great aunt, Emma, that are at first kind of amusing, um, like sort of she stares at the family as they get out of the pool naked. Uh, she has this odd aversion to electricity. Um, but then uh, becomes sinister as uh, Tim's little sister Beth becomes convinced that uh, great aunt Emma or Grinny is not only not related to them, but not real at all. Tim, she's weird. Come on, Beth. Great aunt Emma just doesn't like dogs, especially wet dogs. Tim, Beth, what's all the noise? I'm telling mom and dad about you. And the um, swimming pool nudity seems to be, I looked this up on Goodreads, and it seems mm. to be the thing that puts a lot of like modern readers off. Um, so the top most rated review was from a woman who sort of said that this book's not appropriate for children uh, because the family swim naked. And this had a lot of likes. Um, I don't know if it's like... Huh. And... There's some truth to the fact that the kids don't seem to particularly care for the swimming, although I don't think their issue is swimming naked so much as swimming when it's cold, um, to be honest. Um, I can see why Nicholas Fisk uses it as a device, because, um, and you probably wouldn't get it in a kid's book written today, but the, the... Hmm. Grinny doesn't know anything about the anatomy and the biology of humans, and obviously, being on a fact-seeking mission from the aliens, 
um, you know, is interested in this. And that's why, you know, when they get naked out of the pool, Quiddy looks at this. And obviously that seems really kind of creepy and weird. And mm. I think, I mean, Tim, as a narrator, kind of contextualises it a little bit um, and, and sort of talks about um, the kind of free thinking health set, basically. Um, <laughs> and it kind of puts in this very 1970s context, right? Of <laughs> sort of people going, you know, there's a period where people went, not, you know, not everyone, but, you know, there would have been like middle-class families, they like, uh, going to a, uh, a naturist colony for their health <laughs> and, and things like this. You know, you see sort of documentaries of this kind of period. And so I think the idea is that the father's on a, on a health kick and this swimming naked is, is you know. Yeah. I mean, and it is their, their own pool. like uh, Yeah, yeah, which he said, you know, he says, you know, we yeah. do have standards. We wouldn't just walk around naked yeah. in someone else's house or leave the <laughs> toilet door open. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, but yeah, I thought it was worth mentioning that this does seem to be the the most common response to it on Goodreads um, is that the book's inappropriate because of this. I, you know, it's a small element near the beginning of the book. Um, of all but, the things to object to. Um... Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there, there, there were a lot of, kind of well, uh, oh, issues well, around child safety and things in this yeah. book. Um... That's interesting. That would never have occurred to me. Um, yeah. I, just um, thought, I, I mean, I, I, I thought it's interesting that they have their own pool. That's pretty unusual. <laughs> in, <laughs> but uh, I, oh. the, I don't know, the nudity didn't... Yeah, I mean, I guess I don't, I can't remember, does it say what part of America we're in, whether this is like, because I, I guess if it's like California, like, I tend to assume that, This know. is, this is England. What? Yeah. Is English? Yeah. Oh my God, they've got, what? <laughs> okay, okay, well, okay, them having a, a, a swimming pool's outrageous. I mean, in America, it seems like, you know. <laughs> I mean, can't you tell from from Tim's like, it's like it, Tim's narratorial voice is incredibly that, English. That's a really good point. I I, I think <laughs> I don't know. I think I just sort of assumed <laughs> they were like American New Money. Yeah, no. It was the swimming pool. The swimming pool. I I think the idea of I mean, God, they must be really rich. <laughs> Well, it's based on Nicholas Fisk had his own swimming pool. Oh, so. well, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I guess he must have made a pretty packet <laughs> of his books. Um, but yeah, no, um, I mean, it's, uh, yeah, no, no one has their own swimming pool apart from Nicholas Fisk in, in the UK. Oh, no. yeah. I mean, it is an interesting thing about, it makes me think of... Uh, the Blumhouse, you know, uh, horror films were uh, based on. I think the second one based on the Enfield Haunting. Hmm. I think so. Basically, um, it's the second Conjuring film, and it's set in England. Hmm. And you know, this is all set on like. I can't remember where's Enfield, I guess, but it's like a housing estate, right? And mm. they go to this house, and then they've got this massive basement. <laughs> <laughs> it's like these are like terraced houses, and I was just like, "This is not an English house. Like, where, where's this yeah. massive basement come from?" <laughs> yeah. <laughs> On a long, like, yeah. <laughs> but okay, okay. So, so mm. gosh, yeah. So 
they're, they're an English family with a swimming pool. So uh, I yeah. now understand why so they're So it's able... already speculative fiction at this point. But... <laughs> well, I can now understand why they're sat around drinking sherry all the time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um... <laughs> right. So anyway... Um... So the first, the first sign that something is uh, is definitely quite uh, wrong about Grinny is that she slips outside and and hurts her wrist, and uh, Beth sort of rushes out to help her up, and then runs away without saying anything, and is kind of acting very strangely for the rest of the day, and um, eventually um, <laughs> Tim manages to. Uh, to get the story out of Beth that um, that when Grinny fell over, she broke her wrist, but there wasn't any blood. That like the the skin was split open, and the bone was sticking out, but the bone was made of metal, and there wasn't any blood. Um, and uh, Beth uh, Beth says she's not real, and Tim kind of goes. Okay, <laughs> and isn't isn't entirely convinced yet, but um, I like that as existential horror. That it's not that Beth says, "Oh, she's made of metal," or she's a robot. It she says repeatedly, "She's not real." Mm. I really like that this idea that you know she's not she's not Aunt Emma, and so she's not real. Yeah, that that she has this she sort of has this non-existence that her existence is impossible. And so Beth's way of explaining this wrongness is to keep repeatedly saying that she's not real. Yeah. Um, I thought that was really neat. Um, it's at this point in my copy of the book that some young upstart crow has written ass in gold <laughs> pen um, before the entry of February the 8th, which I was none, uh... none too impressed at. So, um, huh. yeah. If 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 li- listener, if you were the child who wrote this <laughs> in the copy of Grinny that I ended up picking up, consider yourself told off and <laughs> du- duly chastised because I was I was unimpressed. Yes, yes, that's uh, it's not big and it's not clever. No, even if that's what you think of the book, you know, you you write that in your Goodreads review, not in the book itself. Ass. <laughs> yeah. Um. <laughs> so, um, so the next weird thing that happens is uh, is a UFO um, that appears outside the window. Um, and Tim's watching, and he gets uh, gets his dad out of bed, and they um, they both look at this. They both look at this UFO. Um, as a Description of it says um, it was far brighter than, moon, than the moon and had yellowish brilliance. I remember thinking how it clashed with the steely blue of the moon. I also remember seeing the yellowish reflections of its light on the frosted grass of the lawn. The sort of effect you get when you look at a boat with a light on it far out at sea. Um, that's quite a nice description. Um, that is a nice description. And did you notice what's really different about this scene? compared to almost every other children's horror that we've read. No. The dad sees the UFO. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> like, 
Like yeah, normally true. what would happen is, you know, the kids would see this thing and they'd get the parent and the parent wouldn't believe them. But no, the, the dad gets to see the UFO through the telescope. Yeah, that's true. Because, yeah, which is interesting because otherwise this granny is quite... Uh, seems to fit quite into the kind of genre of like kind of demon headmaster sort of thing of kids versus adults mm. um and that the parents are hypnotized by by grinny but the but the kids aren't um but um yeah it's true he does he does see the ufo as well <laughs> yeah so in in the book there's a, a sketch from the father of the UFO, so he doesn't get to take a photograph of it. Um, by the time he set up the camera, the UFO's disappeared. But uh, he does a kind of composite drawing of it based on Tim and Beth's and his own description of, of what the spacecraft looked like. Hmm. And it seems like Grinny, on some level, communicates with the UFO. I don't know if this becomes apparent yeah. at this point. Well, yeah, you kind of get that idea because um, sort of Tim goes to her room and finds her uh, lying sort of flat on her back and uh, glowing (laughs) from the inside. Um, And she's sort of, I think she's sort of murmuring to herself. Or there's a a slight fluttering, twittering sound, um, which is kind of what they later call Grinish, which is her sort of language for communicating with the UFO. Uh, here's, here it is on page 50 Grinny was lying flat on her back on the bed with her arms by her side above the covers she was rigid and still like a corpse or an Egyptian mummy but she was luminous there was even a faint glow through the bedcloths I remember thinking in a matter of fact sort of way she doesn't seem to need much covering just one blanket because of course the light couldn't have passed through several blankets I went closer, I wasn't frightened yet, and saw another thing. Her eyes were wide open. She was staring at the ceiling, staring at nothing, and her eyes were lit up from inside, like water when you put the lens of a lit torch in it. Her mouth was open, and she was grinning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um... And then just a little bit further on, it says, I think it was the reflection of her luminosity on her teeth that made me give a sort of scream. (laughs) (laughs) It's a detail I really like. (laughs) Yeah, that's almost texture of the week level. Yeah, it was one of my contenders, I think. um, Her her inner luminosity reflecting on her teeth. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's a good one. (laughs) So the um the kids uh, decide to to test Granny's aversion to electricity um with a, a Wimshurst machine. Um and this being the nineteen seventies when children were free to electrocute themselves if they wanted to, <laughs> they um <laughs> bring this machine <laughs> into the house. Um to be fair, this is the kind of thing I could imagine my dad had as a kid. Like, yeah, <laughs> I've heard about how he had a chemistry set as a kid and literally like blew the door off <laughs> uh, off the garage. So. <laughs> yeah. Um, so 
This is described as a... This is the antediluvian device with two big con- contra-rotating wheels and sticks with knobs on the end of them sticking out. You wind the handle, the two wheels turn, static electricity is generated, and you get exciting blue sparks zipping about between the two knobs. Um, so, so they have this contraption. and um, <laughs> Just knocking about in the house. Yeah. <laughs> um, and they, um, and they, they start, like, sort of... With, with the, so Tim and Beth and their friend Mac, and they're sort of showing it off to Grinny. Like, oh, isn't this... Look at this contraption, isn't it? Isn't it brilliant? Yeah, um, and um, she's getting more and more uncomfortable and they um, kind of pretend not to hear and sort of sort of start winding it up so it's got all these sparks flying around and so sort of bringing it closer to her and then kind of putting their hands in the sparks and d- daring Grinny to do that as well um, and uh, yeah it's clear she's pretty scared of this thing and um they um, only stop when um, Tim's uh, dad bursts in and uh, shouts at them all. Yeah, they uh, have definitely established that Gurney is scared of electricity. Um, as, as, as well she might be. I mean, electricity is really weird. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's not an unreasonable thing to be scared of, even if... You aren't made of metal. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think it, by this point, Tim is um, is quite convinced that uh, Grinny is is not real. But if she's not real, what is she? <laughs> yeah. Well, at, at first, he's treating uh, Beth's claims like they were claims of the week. Um, but but they don't qualify for claims of the week because Beth is completely right. Um, you know he he says a lot about how you know women and girls are just led by their emotions and they're irrational creatures and so on. Um, and yes, yeah, Beth is is wise to Grinny from the start, and mm-hmm. yeah, is 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 proved to be right. I feel like you're meant to. I don't know, be fairly on side with Tim? Or, from what Nicholas Fisk writes, uh, or he's quoted in the afterword, he says that, you know, Tim's basically him when he was 11. And so, you know, mm. he was just sort of putting on. I think there's maybe a bit of an assumption that boys around that age are going to be reading this book and they're just going to relate to Tim. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it's good that Tim isn't like, <laughs> validated in all the chauvinism but it gets pretty <laughs> wearing because there's quite a lot of it yeah and I think that's this that's one of the things that's uh that's aged about this book is this kind of jocular sexism of <laughs> the of Tim's that um uh yeah <laughs> so it's it's, it's just it's wearying oh and they so Tim and Beth also have a friend, or Tim has a friend called Mac who comes over, who also gets gets in on the uh, Grinny conspiracy action. Mm-hmm. And so I think he's part of the electricity game to test Grinny. Yeah. Um, so yeah, and he gets uh, 
he gets involved in trying to figure out what she wants and why she's here. Um, and so they do this, that you mentioned this eyes right trick on, on Grinny, where instead of looking directly at her, they address a, a spot one foot to the right of her at all times. And this sort of makes her very anxious and sort of then eventually sort of drives her into a sort of frenzy where she starts speaking Grinnish. And, uh, and they, they do this a second time. She um, gets so worked up, she ends up grabbing Max's hand and breaking his thumb. Um, um, it, does, it, does she snap it backwards? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, she's... And I think, I think that the the reason why she does that is that Mac uses her her own phrase um, on on her. He says, um, "He's sort of she's she's speaking Greenish, and he says, tell us about spaceships or something. You can tell me, Grinny. It's Mac. You remember me.' Um, and that's when she grabs his hand." Um, so, yeah, um. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a pretty nasty little moment, and I think one of the reasons for genuine suspense in the book and in Monster Maker is you do feel like the kids are at serious risk of harm. Mm. Like there's always the sense that you know Nicholas Fisk would be quite willing to hurt, you know, <laughs> that, that these children you know can get hurt or killed potentially. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so then that night, the the UFO appears again, and Tim goes straight to Grinny's door, and over here has her saying something about little difficulty and quite suitable. Um, and sort of realizes that she's talking about the planet. Oh, um, <laughs> mostly harmless to use. The mostly harmless. Hitchhikers. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and um, and uh, Mac, uh, Tim confronts Granny about breaking Mac's thumb, and um, I'll just read this bit. Um, what happens next? Um, Granny says, "I do not suffer from heat or cold or toothache or any such things, as I think you know. Even if you break my wrist, I feel no pain, and it mends itself almost instantly, which is most convenient." I said, Mac feels pain. You broke his thumb. She said, you sound upset. If you like, you may break a finger of mine. For Mac. She held out her old hand with the finger spread. Any finger, she said. I made some sound or other and flinched back from her. She said, you are afraid, and quite rightly. It's quite correct that you should be afraid, quite in order. You must not mind, Timothy. You must get used to it. Indeed you must. The strangeness of it all. You must accustom yourself to it. She still had her hand stretched out. Then she took hold of one of her fingers with the other hand and gave a sudden twist. The finger she broke just split open. The skin parted and it split open. The finger was twisted and it was all out of line with the other fingers. There were little metal bones inside the split skin and some of them stuck out, glinting. I thought I was going to be sick and was floundering about rather. She soon put a stop to that, however. She said, There, you must accustom yourself to it. It's a fact of life, Timothy. I am a new fact of all human life. 
That's quite demon head mastery. Yeah. That's a repetition <laughs> of logical imperatives, and that's the way it is. Mm-hmm. Um, although I think Grinny's even more alien than the demon head master, because the demon yeah. head master like, seems to basically understand humans, whereas I guess Grinny's only just arrived on the planet, and mm-hmm. so, um, you know, spends a lot of time trying to ha- trying to puzzle out humans, and yeah. Mm. And then sort of the showdown of the book, uh, Grinny kind of explains to Tim and Beth and Mac that her planet is uh, far too overcrowded, and so her species are coming to settle on Earth, and the adults will be hypnotised, but uh, the children will be enslaved, basically, to, to serve the, the new conquerors. Um, Quite suitable. I see little difficulty. Should I? Yes, great. You may come in now, Tim and Ben. As you may have guessed, I am a new factor in human life. You are going to have to get used to me. Are you going to eat us or something? Oh, my, no. We never eat. We just need energy. You see, we've used up our world. So now you want this one? Exactly. Well, what about people who live here now? The useful ones, people under our control, will be put to work. And what about us? You can't control us. We can't control the children. Your minds are so wild, so unpredictable. But you'll either help us, or you'll have to go away. And uh, Beth is in favour of killing Grinny, um, pushing her against an electric heater or bashing her with an iron poker. Uh, But Tim doesn't think this will be much use because they could just send a replacement. Uh, So they decide that they're going to have to make her surrender and say to the UFO that the Earth isn't suitable after all. Um, so yeah, there's, you, there's, um... no sen- there's no sense that Grinny can be reasoned with. It, Grinny's very much like the Terminator. Mm, yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, Beth seems kind of scarily violent in this, but she's, mm. she's also clearly right. <laughs> like, um, yeah. You know, Grinny does seem more like a robot than mm. the I mean yeah I mean obviously that's a whole other debate you know <laughs> but but yeah I don't know I, I, I can understand why Beth doesn't have a sympathetic or sentimental <laughs> response to Grilly yeah um, and you, you texted me after you read this this the end of Grinny is just an extended torture sequence. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which, uh, which it is. I mean, um, they're, they're basically torturing a robot, but, you know, it, I don't know if anyone listening has seen AI uh, and so remembers the robot torture scenes and that. It d- doesn't make it any more comfortable. Um, so they're going to try to break Grinny's programming, I suppose. Yeah. So she, so they do the eyes right thing on her again, and they're trying to project emotions at her. Oh, Max trying to um, uh, 
project determination and Tim is trying to project confusion and Beth's just going with hate. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> they, um, <laughs> which is, says at one point she's like, she's muttering, I want you to die and die and die. Grinny has this instrument that is described as a, a torch thing. Um, I don't know if we're meant to be like, what were torches like in in 1973? Were they quite big? I mean, I assume they were kind of bulky. Yeah, I'd imagine so. So I imagine it's quite a quite a big bulky torch. Um, and uh, Grinny sort of let slip that this can be used to to punish, and so the kids direct it to punish her instead. Um, and uh, she reveals why she's so scared of electricity. It's like some humans are scared of blood. It's her life fluid. <laughs> and uh, they uh, threaten Grinny with this device until she tells the spacecraft that the Earth is not suitable. And then the torch thing tears Grinny apart. Yeah. Um, Shall I read it? Yeah. Then she was on the floor. And there was the metal cutting noise again. And her screams. But they stopped just as they were becoming unbearable. I couldn't see much of what was happening, and what I could see I could hardly believe. She seemed to be tearing herself to pieces. You could see the fragments of cloth and patches of her skin and the glinting metal of her bones. There was a sort of drumming noise. It was her heels and elbows on the floor. Beth was screaming, I don't care, I'm glad, and sobbing and shuddering. Her eyes were completely round, and she was staring at Grinny on the floor, still hating her. I thought she shouldn't be watching and put my arm round her, trying to push her head into my chest so that she couldn't see, but she just clawed my arm aside and went on looking. Mac was trying to get the lights to work. I'm glad he failed. And then all the noise and flailing motion stopped. There was just a small dragging, scraping sound. It was one of her arms. It was being separated from her body. It was being pulled towards the French windows by the torch thing. It went on like this. On and on. We three just stood there cold with horror while she was dismembered. The limbs and bits of machinery weren't so bad. It was the clothing that made you feel sick. Old ladies' clothes, human clothes, with some busy, vile, alien machine inside them making them heave and twitch and bulge as it cut and ripped. The torch thing was as busy and unstoppable as a rat, never pausing from its nibblings and humped-up scurryings and lunges and tugs. At last it had finished. What had been great Aunt Emma was a pile of rubbish outside the French windows. Yeah. It's a pretty gruesome extended description. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think it's um definitely something evocatively creepy about the uh, the old lady clothes and the the metal. Yeah. 
the metal arms and stuff. Um, I mean, it was my first kind of choice for texture of the week. So shall we do texture of the week? Okay, sure. Okay. Texture, texture. It's the texture of the week. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was my, my first choice. And I, I also um, really like uh, the Slurks that are the kind of little monsters in Monster Maker. Mm. Um, I mean, they're... These are, I mean, these are like little stop-motion monsters. Um, the kind Ray Harryhausen would have made. Um, I kind of mm. imagine them also as like... Warhammer monsters, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and their first description um, is this. They were called slurks. There were 96 of them, all the same. Their bodies were deathly white, like dead flesh left too long in a pond. Their mouths could be opened or closed and were coloured inside with a nasty yellowish hue. Sharp spines ran down their backs there was a sinister plumpness around their middles, as if they'd just gorged themselves on carrion. Their eyes were of green enamel over small dish-shaped bright tin cups. Periwinkle had suggested and carried out the enamels. You must be mad to think of using plastics, Chancy. Plastics go dull, and I can get you a ghastly glitter at only half the cost. She'd been right about everything, as usual, except the cost, which turned out to be very high, as she charged Chansey for two new electric enamelling stoves, which she'd long wanted. Somehow, Periwinkle had got a reptilian slit-like pupil into the enamelled irises. The slits had to be set just so, or the sinister effect was lost. <laughs> but, yeah, I, I like the kind of enamel surface and... I think in Monster Maker, this um, ambiguity over whether the monsters are just models or actually secretly mm. alive uh, is something that sustains the book. And I think you get that from their first description, because even though they're clearly described as models and you have the materials and you can imagine the texture of the paint, um, also their fleshy physicality, you know, the plumpness as if they just gorged on carrion is really <laughs> emphasised as well. Um, mm. which does make them seem kind of organic and alive. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. How about you? Um, well, I already mentioned Grinny's uh, luminous reflecting teeth. Um, I got <laughs> another small one, which is uh, uh, <laughs> in Monster Maker, uh, the main character, Matt, it says he has a nice bouncy radish that he considers throwing at his sister. Um, I just say <laughs> the idea of a bouncy radish just uh, quite pleasing. But um, my my main my main texture I've gone with is um, is from Monster Maker, where um, we'll, we'll we'll get to this. But Matt, the main character, um, gets a concussion, um, and there's lots of very good descriptions about the world going a bit woobly. Um, but this is just after he gets hit on the back of the head. Um, there was an explosion somewhere. Then nothing happened. Then there was grass right in front of him. Grass everywhere. The grass was the wrong colour. 
Each blade was sharply outlined in brilliant grey light, and the centres of the blades were another sort of greenish white. He raised his head from the grass and looked at the sky. The sky too was the wrong colour. It was bleached to a blue-grey-white that hurt the eyes. Even the trees, their branches moving with the wind, were wrong. So far away. Yet they were like rubber sponges, each pore distinct and sharp, but blinding grey instead of green. There's some really sharp descriptions in Monster Maker. Um, yeah. It's really and, and well written. It's really um, well... Antonia recommended it to me because it's the, the one that made an impression on her when she was young. Mm. Um, like she'd read Grinny as well, but she said Monster Maker was her favourite. And, yeah, I do think that actually his writing has really improved quite a lot by the time he gets to Monster Maker. Not that Grinny's badly written. Um, mm. But... Um, I don't know, maybe it was just, you know, maybe he just really enjoyed writing about these little models and uh, and the filmmaking. But, uh, yeah, there's some there's some lovely description in Monster Maker. Mm. Yeah, so, um, yeah, Monster Maker um, shares some common preoccupations with Granny, sort of kind of around animacy, I guess, what makes something alive. Um and uh, also shares a, a gleeful disregard for electrical safety. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, it's a, it's about a 15-year-old boy called Matt who is a, a great admirer of a man called Chancy Bellow. Dear Mr Bellow, my name is Matthew Banting. I'm 14 years old and I want to be like you, the greatest monster maker in the world. Is that how you, you'd think you'd pronounce that? Yeah, that sounds right to me. Yeah. He's a, a practical effects and model maker for TV and film. And he has his workshop in the same village, I guess, that, that Matt lives in. Um, and uh, Matt's desperate to see inside. And he manages to catch a lift with Chansey when he sees him in the local hardware shop and impresses him with the, a functioning radio that he's built inside a, a walnut shell. Um and uh, so he gets to he gets to see inside and gets taken on as a kind of unpaid apprentice, um, um, and is ends up working on these on these creatures called slurks that he described. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, there's lots of great descriptions of um, the of the slurks and the ultra gorgon, which is the the massive beast that Chauncey's been working on that breathes actual fire. Um, <laughs> And um, the the conflict of the book comes because Matt's sister Jan has sort of been taunting him a bit and kind of calling him an errand boy. So in retaliation, he uh, he pulls out these nine five pound notes that Chauncey had dropped, and he was actually going to return them later. But he's like, "Oh, look how much money I've got!" And then. Um, uh, I looked it up, and forty-five pounds is uh, is about two hundred and forty pounds in uh, today's money. Um, so, uh, yeah, um, but the kind of the news travels about Matt's uh, supposed great earnings and um, travels from Jan to her friends to the uh, a group of boys led by Darren, who like to ride their bikes up to the studios and toss bricks through windows and generally be a menace um um and yeah there's um, a a sort of fight sequence 
so they they start they start hassling Matt, and uh, Matt's got um, I think may, may, maybe from his excitement of getting getting to help out at the studio or the workshop, and also uh, he's got a film dreams dancing around his head. He, he thinks that he's going to be able to fight them in this sort of uh, heroic battle. Um, mm. And uh, I don't know, the kind of adrenaline, I guess, kind of gets to his head a bit and he gets quite carried away. Yeah. Um, but he does seem to be winning for a bit, but uh, until one of the gang kind of slugs him around the back of the head with a log. Um <laughs> And uh, then like rides off, and that's uh, yeah, that's when things start to go a bit weird. Um, <laughs> yeah, so um, he's definitely he's concussed, and then yeah, yeah, a doctor sees him and is like, oh, that's a nasty bump, and yeah, that's when the reality of the book starts going a bit wibbly, as he said. Yeah, and we kind of, as you mentioned as well, it's ha- the book has this kind of interesting indeterminacy around kind of the models and creatures being alive and kind of even like before the concussion when Matt's working on the slurks he starts to think he's seeing them wink or that his sweat on their bodies is this kind of clammy reptile fluid and um yeah and there's a kind of sort of playing with the kind of odd semi-life that the models have because they'll come to life with stop motion but um, and they also like physically move because they they have kind of wire inside them. So if they they kind of spring back into shape, kind of slowly in a way that looks like they're alive. <laughs> um, yeah, and I really, I mean, I've said it before, but I just really love the attention that's given to the technical details, the model making. So there's this real focus on how the joints are articulated and you know mm. how, how how a certain um, texture or a certain look is achieved yeah we, um, we have the character of periwinkle who's a makeup expert and uh she kind of works on painting the models um yeah and jewelry um, yeah um yeah she's <laughs> she's a uh an eccentric artist who's uh also has her studio um near, nearby to the um to the film studio and sort of they can't keep her out um, (laughs) but she she sometimes just like flourishes her paintbrush and like makes something uh work like that was not working (laughs) um yeah chancy the model maker is is clearly a bit of a grumpy old man but at the same time he he obviously has has this kind of soft spot for periwinkle and knows that she's very talented and so Kind of plays up to not liking her around, but actually clearly does. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, so. So after the fight, uh, this this doctor is is um, is very old and not very with it, and sort of doesn't really do anything useful, like tell Matt to go to the hospital. <laughs> um, <laughs> so he, he just kind of wakes up and he uh, says his, his face it says, it reminds him of rotten plums and puffballs. Oh. <laughs> but um, he tells himself, come on, you noble lad, be brave, be bionic. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> which I think I might be stealing as a, as a I was going to I was going to say that you should you should take that self-talk right yeah that's, it's great <laughs> <laughs> I'll put it over my mirror be brave be bionic um, <laughs> and he kind of stumbles to the studios but uh, Chansey sort of presses some 10 pound notes onto him and tells him that he'll, he'll have a job there when he leaves school and that he should just go home until his his face isn't mush. Um, but uh, he finds that his bike's been vandalised and there's a note that says, tonight's the night. So, And in his concussed state, he finds it all a bit too much and is just like, makes himself a makeshift bed in one of the rooms of the studios. Um, <laughs> which, uh, But no one knows who's there. But um, that night, Darren's gang arrive and it's kind of the end of the day and Chansey and his assistant Reg is in a bickering over their coffee. Oh yeah, and, and they've they built this security system because the uh, the boys had been throwing rocks and at the studio yeah. and stuff and uh, Chansey had uh, got Reg to knock up this security system and Reg keeps saying are you sure Chansey this could kill someone and Chansey's like yeah yeah <laughs> Um, sure. Health and safety standards um, in the 1970s. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, I, th- I think Reg speculates that what they're doing probably is illegal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Chansey is extremely unbothered. Um, <laughs> they, they remember that they, they need to switch this on. So, but that, but by the time they have the the, the gang are already in the studio. Uh, um, so. They find Matt, who's asleep, and tie him up. And they also find Periwinkle and tie her up, despite her trying to attack them with a soldering iron. Um, And the gang sort of kicks some slurks about and then find the Ultragorgon. And uh, one of the gang who's kind of gone off looking for money or something sort of comes a cropper of Chansey's booby trap um, and gets knocked unconscious. Um, and then the alarm sounds and uh, Matt and Periwinkle manage to escape and they, they like run into the Ultra Gorgon's enclosure and uh, and sort of Matt in his concussed state kind of sees the Ultra Gorgon eating one of the gang um, and uh, that they he's about to face up to Darren again but Chansey and Reg and Periwinkle uh, Reg and Periwinkle appear and, and pull him off um, and he kind of they all get out and uh, none of the gang are actually dead are they uh, some, somewhat <laughs> somewhat hurt but, um, yeah it's probably a close call <laughs> yeah <laughs> but Chansey's quite confident that he can uh, defend himself against any charges of child maiming um, <laughs> but the kind of parts of the parts of the studios are, are kind of on fire in Periwinkle's workshop but but the Ultra Gorgon is safe. So um, Matt kind of cycles back home and he's kind of absolutely out of his mind um, at this point. He's kind of seeing uh, seeing a kind of London underground map of lights uh, behind his eyes. Um, and he kind of sees slurks kind of coming out of the bushes and coming for him. And he collapses on the road. And uh, the next thing he knows, he's, he's back in bed and... His uh, his family have found it, uh, and the next day Chansey kind of picks him up and 
explains that the things he saw in the night coming alive weren't actually real. You know? And the, the slugs were just fluttering pieces of paper and the, the glinting eye of the creature with sparks from the fire. He's like, okay. <laughs> and I, <laughs> I, I don't know. I think he believes him in the end. But uh, yeah, it's definitely a bit ambiguous. <laughs> um, yeah, and that's... Uh, that's pretty much the end of the book. Um, it's uh, the the real horror was uh, teenage boys all along. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. It, it it's a funny book because I I don't know, I don't know if I'd call it a horror or not. Really, it's sort of about horror more than it is mm. horror, maybe. But um. Hmm. I don't know, I just think it has a bit more to it than Grinny. Hmm. Yeah, I agree. Um, it's, um, it's got some, uh, yeah, it's just got some really interesting kind of atmosphere and kind of great descriptions and sort of, yeah, the kind of playing around with what what's real and what's animate it's um it's an interesting little book it is it might be a little slow for some kids today um mm. like i don't know but then i don't know if i mean grinny would have been too scary for me but um i don't know i've i've been at the uh the local primary helping out a couple of lunch times a week um last last few weeks and uh they're they're they're, they're talking on about Hugsy Wugsy and who's scarier, Hugsy Wugsy or Pennywise? Um, and uh, you know what would you do if Pennywise was chasing you down down an alleyway? I mean, I, I said when I was when I was a kid, I, I you know I hadn't even seen Pennywise, but um, I was so scared of the idea that I used to have to shower with the plug in in the plug hole, and I put my foot over. I, I thought that would stop Pennywise from from wiggling his way up the plug hole, but um, <laughs> yeah, I, I imagine a demonic, ancient, evil clown probably could get make his way through a child's foot. Um, <laughs> to be honest, but <laughs> yeah. I said the thing with Pennywise as well is that the way to defeat him is if you're not scared of Pennywise, then he hasn't got any power. So um, mm. that seemed to reassure those who looked a bit nervous. Um, did I did I tell you though about the conversation I had with one of them about Spider Man? <laughs> no. Okay, so one of this last week, one of them had a, a Spider Man lunchbox, and I said trying to start a conversation, it's just a little like six year old boy. And I said, well, you know, maybe Spider-Man has a lunchbox. And he said, no, Spider-Man eats when he gets home. He seemed quite affronted by by my suggesting that Spider-Man would have a lunchbox. I said, well, you know, Spider-Man has to... To be honest, I haven't seen like a Spider-Man film since that terrible Spider-Man 3 when <laughs> Spider-Man was an emo. That's the last Spider-Man I watched. So, I don't, mm. you know, I don't know much about Spider-Man. But I said, you know, I know that Spider-Man goes around on the rooftops... He's out and about quite a lot, so he probably does get hungry, and that might 
you know, maybe he would want to eat when he's out on the job. And then the little boy said, well, Spider-Man would eat you. Um, I said, well, no. I said, he wouldn't eat me because Spider-Man, Spider-Man doesn't eat people. And he said, yes, Spider-Man eats people. I said, well, no. I said, Spider-Man's good. Spider-Man, you know, he's not a cannibal. I said, Spider-Man's good. He doesn't eat people. I said, and then he said, well, Venom eats people. And, you know, I don't know much about... <laughs> You know, super. So I, you know, I couldn't say he was wrong on that. And I said, well, I don't know, maybe. I said, Venom's bad though, so I don't know. But Spider Man doesn't. And then he he sort of paused and reflected, and then said, hmm, Spider Man eats spiders. <laughs> I sort of left. I left it there, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, if if you hmm. if if anyone wants to email about whether Spider Man does eat people. Um, <laughs> that would be good to know because you know I'm I'm in the dark. I'm I'm really behind with superheroes, and I know that they have have dropped the ante to make superheroes you know more exciting or whatever. So maybe maybe in nowadays Spider Man does eat people for all I know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess it's not you know he's between a spider and a man, so in a way, I guess it's okay for him to eat spiders and people, really. <laughs> hmm. But yeah. Um, well, yeah. So it serves me right for, for patronising Spider-Man by suggesting that he could possibly have a lunchbox. <laughs> he could have a lunchbox full of spiders. <laughs> That's what a, a lunchbox of spiders and people, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Um, well, uh, yeah. So, um mm-hmm. Um, that was, uh, that was our journey into the 1970s with Nicholas Fisk. Um, thanks again, Dave, for suggesting that. Um, it was, a it was an enjoyable read. Um, um, do you have a sign off for us, Adam? Not before you do the credits, Red. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, I never remember them. Uh, okay. okay. Um, so. Um... <laughs> I'm sorry. Oh, yeah. oh, no, it's all right. Um, you can um, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or iTunes. Um, you can email us at stillscaredpodcast at gmail.com. I'm uh, trying to uh, transfer us away from Twitter, so I've made an Instagram account that's. Uh, going to be porting posts to the Twitter. So Twitter's still there, but um, neither of us are on Twitter, so I don't really want to use it much. So, um, But an Instagram account is... Uh, <laughs> I think it's just Still Scared Podcast. Um, but, um, yeah, just Still Scared Podcast, so you can follow us on Instagram. Our intro music is by Maki Yamazaki. Our outro music... Outro music is by Joe Kelly. Our artwork's by Letty Wilson. Do you have a sign off for us, Adam? Of course I do. <laughs> be brave, be bionic, creepy kids. <laughs> be brave, be bionic, spooky kids. <laughs> See you next time. <laughs> Bye. Bye. <laughs>